Hey everybody, I'm Eric Tornberg, co-founder, partner, Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is an episode of Venture Stories, where we deep dive on topics relating to tech and business with some of the world's leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to the Village Global Podcast Venture Stories. I'm here with Joe Varshney of Verisim, our very own, and Eric Stefanich of Genentech. Guys, welcome to the prestigious Village Global Podcast. Thank you for having us. Thank you very much. It's a true pleasure to have you guys on. Joe, Eric, would you guys like to introduce yourselves, um, what you're currently up to, and how that came to be? Okay, my name is Eric Stefanich, and I'm currently at Genentech, where I've been for the past 23 years. I'm a director and senior scientist, and I lead a group of scientists where our main job is really to translate the pharmacology that uh, we see preclinically to what we can expect to see in the clinic to help figure out what the starting doses are, what the safe doses are to take in the patients. And my group supports uh, mainly mon- non-oncology therapeutic areas for large molecules, antibodies, and other large entities. Thank you both for making time. I'm Joe Washney. I am a CEO and co-founder of Very Sim Life. We are building computer-based simulations of whole body animal or human models to really help researchers at pharma to be able to quickly determine what drugs are good for the body or may have adverse reactions without having to spend a lot of time and money to do so. Excellent. Okay, we're going to get into a lot of things drug development. But before before we do that, a lot of people confuse drug development and drug discovery or don't know the difference between the two. As explained, what is the difference? So, I mean, I think everyone's heard of R&D or research and development. So discovery is typically done in research. And that really means you're discovering the target, the pathway that you think is involved in some disease in humans. Uh, And it's also discovering the molecule, the drug that you want to use to either block that pathway, enhance it, whatever your mechanism of action is. So really, once you discover the target and the drug, the rest of it is the development part. And that is much more broad and spans a much longer time frame. So that includes understanding pharmacokinetics, the pharmacodynamics, the safety assessment but through toxicology studies. Of course, that all takes assays to measure things, so it's assay development. Ultimately, there's regulatory interactions where you apply to take this to humans for the first time, either with the FDA or ex-U.S. health authorities. Uh, and then the whole clinical development is all part of development. So you take it through the different phases of clinical development to understand pharmacokinetics and safety in patients, and then ultimately efficacy. And then you apply for approval to market it. And all, and it may even be post-marketing commitments. You, all the while, there's uh, longer-term tox studies, repotox studies if this patient population is women of childbearing age. So all that encompasses what so-called development. Uh, and so it spans a lot of different functions and time, and, and is much more broad and probably the most expensive part uh, of the of the R&D. And what are some of the biggest companies that have emerged out of the drug development market? So I, I think there's also a distinction between um, pharmaceutical companies, which have been around for much longer, and they make small molecules, pills, uh, and the much newer, or not new anymore, but the newer biotechnology companies, which makes large molecules that are grown in cells. Typically, they're antibodies, but they're also other formats now. Uh, and so obviously the, you know, the big pharmaceutical companies are the J&J, the Pfizer's, the, you know, the other ones that have been around for a while. But now, of course, uh, if you look at the approved drugs like 10 years ago versus now, the majority of them now are biologics, whereas before they were small molecules. And so now that's players like, you know, especially with the cancer immunotherapy, Merck, 
has emerged, uh, BMS, uh, and of course, Genentech was the first biotech company, although we're now part of the Roche overall right. um, organization. And what's led to that evolution or that, that change? Because biotechnology came around later, uh, it took a while to show that you could make an impact. But the biologics are typically much more specific uh, than a small molecule could ever be. And so I think you then are able to target certain targets that small molecules couldn't necessarily handle. Uh, and then you can go after new areas that made significant contributions to disease. And that opened up the field uh, for a lot of other biologics. Uh, and of course, now they're become the the biggest money makers in the drug world today. And so as you evaluate the landscape for future opportunities to innovate, where do you sort of see as greenfield or, or, you know, wide open? So I think, you know, whether it's small markets, or large markets, drug development in general, uh, it takes a long time to get a, from discovery to a, a drug approved that could be, you know, 15 years. Uh, and it can cost up to $2 billion, $2.5 billion. That's because you account for everything that didn't work in that same time to get that one that did. And so where you, where everyone's trying to go is, one, reduce that failure rate. So that's informing more. Uh, I think Joe mentioned some of that, and we'll talk about it more, about um, what molecule to select, what perhaps what patients to go into, uh, what biomarks to look at, and then also uh, to reduce that time. Uh, and if you can reduce animal studies eventually by doing it in silico, um, that would reduce a lot of time too. And of course, people are cutting cutting ways out now by going right from you know a first study in humans to a pivotal study because they don't want to take time doing dose ranging. So I mean, there's cutting that's going on now, but I think there's a long way to go to reduce failure rate and to reduce the time it takes to get these innovative right. new drugs to the market. Two point five billion dollars to get a drug to market. What are sort of the biggest bottlenecks that are causing it to be? So I, I think one is the failure rate. So the majority of the drugs don't make it to market because they fail uh, in some either before it gets to the clinic or, or in clinic because most likely uh, safety or because... Uh, and is it 90% or would you, would you say, Joe, is a failure rate? So it's, uh, especially if you're talking very specific to animal testing, according to FDA, 92% of the drugs that even pass the animal testing with safety and efficacy results do not make it past phase one human trials, which is a big issue. That means there is something that is a really big black box that we haven't figured out in drug development and perhaps it's one of the largest bottlenecks. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. Although we do have some information what it is and it's the failures of due because you haven't got the right patients or the dose wasn't right or you didn't have biomarkers to show that you were hitting the pathway you wanted to uh, and you went forward without that data and took a chance and it didn't work out. So I think we understand and this gets back to the pharmacokinetics and pharmacodynamics which is what my group does plays a huge role because it helps you understand what the right dose is and so I think that would be where you can under, shorten that uh, failure rate or reduce that failure rate is by understanding, do you have the right drug? Is it hitting the target at the right amount in the site of action? Because a lot of times the site of action is not necessarily the blood where you're injecting it. It's some tissue uh, where it's not being injected. So, and obviously less drug will be there that's in the blood and trying to understand that. So I think all of this and through, and then modeling is just the math- mathematical accumulation of all this data and, and asking it then situations where you don't have data for, but informed by data. So you can then ask uh, for different questions that will help inform um, what if I change this or the molecule. So I think there's different stages informing the design of the molecule and then figuring out the PK and PD, perhaps even selecting patients, uh, diseases, combinations. So there's different stages this can be applied at all throughout the whole process. Joe, you mentioned animal testing, you know, 92% failure. Walk us through sort of the insight that Verisim, that you and Verisim have developed around this and, and how you plan to to combat that. So when we think about very similar, the word actually comes from very similar, which means 
uh, closest to reality. Or tr- So what we are really trying to build is whole body software simulation based on two big engines. One is the knowledge engine that is basically based on all the animal data or we call the preclinical data that exists and our customers want to provide us uh, to help us validate what our simulations output would look like with the research engine that is we are using machine learning based features to help scale the modeling and simulation approaches. One of the drawbacks of uh, modeling and simulation approach that I think is it's not scalable so it's not reliable. So this is where I think Verisim can provide the insight or the intelligence by really integrating uh, machine learning based algorithm approaches to these models to help them scale and become reliable. So as we gather more data and more information, we are able to make the models more personalized and more patient specific or more drug specific for any type of patient or any type of disease. So that's where we are going. And why hasn't this been done before? Is it just that machine learning and AI wasn't at a point where it could be? That's not entirely true. Uh, I think machine learning or AI was available. The way the complexity of the algorithms and the exhaustiveness of computational capability was not existing even five years back. And more importantly, now there is more awareness of the available data. There's more awareness of how cloud-based services work and how we can really be able to use all this different information or what we call the multi-omics approach together with how a body responds to drug and how drug responds to a body, which is the PKPD, in this area to really tap onto the information of you know, what an animal body is responding to versus a human body. So I think it's more like we're at the right time and right place. Of course, we are here. So it's really easy right. for us to even educate customers as well as the investors on what why Verisim is building it now. And if Eric has something... Yeah, I would say that I, I think PKPD modeling in general has been used throughout drug development. Um, it, it, it's not new in itself. What's new is having it be informed uh, by AI and having it be more powerful. So right now, I mean, most people use a lot of simplified modeling to predict PK, you know, e- either scaling uh, by body weight or just simple modeling. Or, But when you want to start building more complicated models, like a physiologically-based model where you include whole organs, blood flow, or a quantitative uh, systems model where you actually include cell types, pathways, um, signaling components, uh, that all gets much more complicated. And to build that model is very time-consuming. You have to do literature search or experiments to inform uh, all those different parameters that need to be informed. Uh, if you don't have those informed enough, you, your model won't be able to do anything because it's too many unknowns. And so I think what you can help, what this will help is then start helping, uh, one, to make it user-friendly so more people will use it and then make it more powerful to be informed more quickly, uh, able to be built, or even ones that are already built that you could then use, utilize more easily. So I think you can then expand the use of it, make it more powerful and, and make them much more informed. So your your precision would be better and you would have more confidence in the output than you may have if you have a bunch of variability associated with that. Right. Yeah. One thing just to add to that, this perf- that's absolutely correct, is the personalization of precision. I think when we think about personalization in today's time, we still think about post-patient or when the patients have shown symptom. But if we can implement personalization by building more disease-specific models that are scalable, we are able to implement the precision of drug development of finding the right dosage right in the beginning, then rather than waiting when the patient actually, you know, responds to a drug or responds to a disease. So that is something what Verisim is really being able to capture. And it's much easier problem for us to solve than not couple threads. One is, as a big company, how do you think about working with disruptive technologies? You know, uh, and what is your sort of advice to, to startups like Verisim 
that are you know, trying to work with Genentech. Well, I think, you know, Genentech's pretty good in that sense where they've always uh, pushed new technologies and, and they really support that. And in fact, they have extra funds for uh, certain technologies that aren't necessarily related to a specific project, which gets funding so that you can get the funding for it. So I think, uh, I don't know if that's the same across all of um, biotech or pharma, but ge- definitely in Genentech, uh, they've embraced this. In fact, we've have our own systems modeling group um, and I, that we have built up over the past several years uh, to do some of the same stuff, but of course, manually, and it's very time intriguing. And so it takes a long time before we can even start asking it questions. So I think they would definitely adopt something like this and they're always saying they would support disruption. I think everyone's looking for ways to do things better and more, with more accuracy. How about for companies that haven't been as forward thinking, Joe, in terms of, have you faced pushback in trying to convince them of it? Like, what difficulties have you faced in trying to sell something that's new and disruptive? That's a fantastic question. So, I mean, I've been trying to build Verisim uh, for two years offline before I incorporated it. And my, one of my biggest fears for big pharma was like, oh, this is so new and it might not be something people would want or it won't be something people can adapt easily. But honestly, I think there's more pushback from the investors uh, than the uh, pharma users because right. I think they are actually ready because we have eight early adopters and honestly we are at capacity to even have more customers just because of the amount of time it takes to build models and have the educational and customer engagement which means that what we think of pharma maybe 10 years back or people we talk to like I used to get a lot of feedback from investors like oh pharma would not be interested in a software-based company and I never have felt that. And it was almost surprising because I was like, there's a big difference in the school of thought of how things are done. And I, I've worked at Genentech. So I never thought that Genentech won't be a forward thinking company, but it's the same with other customers that, you know, we're talking to or we're working with. So it's more outside pharma where I feel there's yeah, it's a interesting. Big... So we were lucky to have you in our network catalyst program and, right. and you did raise a fantastic round from, you know, a bunch of great investors, but for the people for the investors who didn't get it, what were sort of the, or, or didn't come on, what were the sort of big misconceptions that they had? So one was subject area expertise. I thought, uh, and they were very open about it, that they didn't really understand the space enough or who would be the users. Right. Because it's, I have to agree and admit that it's it can be chaotic for people if they've never handled animal or what right. animal testing is or even preclinical spaces. And the other was a comparison with drug discovery software modeling, which is absolutely different. And the goals are very different. The algorithms are different. The scalability is different. One of the big differences that I think which drug discovery and a company which is trying to disrupt or be entering into drug development is how we model things. When we say about modeling and simulation, we are trying to talk about real physiological parameters. We are talking about how a patient responds to a kidney function test versus what is the genetic trait. And we are building the model around those real values versus in drug discovery, it's absolute modeling approach where they don't really need a lot of real parameters or values to find the next best drug structure or the target uh, per se. So that those were the main concerns. And the third, uh, which was the least concern is the market size. They thought that, oh, there is not enough pharma interest for such approach. And uh, perhaps Eric can shed some more light on that. Which I uh, beg to differ, but I don't know. No, I think it's across the industry. PKPD modeling is used in some form mm-hmm. um, or or other, and I think that 
with the regulatory agencies, they are also very open to it. And they like and appreciate that type of data to support what you're trying to do in the clinic, uh, especially when you get to the clinic. And usually there's typically population analysis are done to understand the population differences. Uh, and so I think you know, but right now you can't, it's not to the point you can get to the personalized space. And there's a whole new effort in personalized cancer vaccine, perhaps, where I can see this uh, could help very much because already they're, tr- they are, they're sequencing that particular patient's cancer and then have to run some algorithm to figure out what the best epitopes to make the vaccine to. And so you can, you know, inform this for that. And, but you can also apply this across the board, perhaps, you know, this patient and this disease with this drug would be better. Uh, you know, with a census model, you can say that pathway is more active in this patient. And so this drug would be better versus that. So I, I do think it's used and accepted. And I think where, where you, where you, the work needs to be done is if you want to replace animal testing, you'd have to work with the regulatory agencies to show that Encelica uh, can predict the outcome. And before, you know, they'll let you replace that to take into clinical. So I think that's where the, the, but accepting it to support pharmacokinetic estimates is already done and well-established. And what does that proof look like? Well, I think you'd have to do, you know, some retrospect, or you'd have to probably, you know, do a study and then retrospectively show that you could have predicted it. And so you'd have to, you know, build the model and then validate it with data, separate data, because, you know, they're all about data. And so a lot of times I'll ask companies just to provide data so that they can right. build a database. So I think it would just be, you know, it takes time before those regulations. Although, you know, this new FDA is looking to shorten the timeframes and change things so they may be more receptive to these type of things. So I think it would just take the data and showing them that this can work and give people confidence that, you know, the safety of patients won't right. be at risk. The FDA, if you're a biotech company, you got to be thinking about whether the FDA can, is it going to make your life difficult or will you have some advantage? How have you thought about the FDA well-being building arson? I think I've been following the, the PKPD area for a while. And since 2009, FDA has been pushing something what they call three R's. And perhaps Eric can talk more about how they've been trying to find alternatives to doing animal testing because of the time and the cost and then the returns are pretty low. Also, they conducted review in 2011 to figure out, okay, what is the real world evidence of these modeling and simulation approaches that are already being used? Whether do they help in making the right decisions? And it seems like around around 64% of the drugs that came into the market or got approved by FDA was all using modeling and simulation approach. And one of the classic examples that FDA really focused on and more importantly, really want to people to understand why modeling and simulation is helpful is they identified and approved a safe pediatric dose because in pediatric population, it's difficult and actually very challenging to identify the right dosage because most of the trials don't happen on uh, real kids. So they identified a drug dosage for an experimental influenza drug in an influenza pandemic year of 2009. And recently, October 2017, they released a PDUFA Act 6, where they promoted to see more scalable in silico models. And uh, we, are, we have an advisor who's really helping us out to have the first conversations with FDA and what what Eric mentioned, what we really need to do on our end is to provide the validation test reports and mention how we are working with our customers to build this enough information that FDA seems to say, okay, this is a good time for us to go back and maybe reduce the number of animals used, perhaps not eliminate, because that is not our initial goal. Our initial goal is to just use the animals for the right drugs, or perhaps not. It's up to them, but it's more specifically known waste time on the toxic drugs or the drugs which are absolutely not going to work on humans. And if we can show that and we have enough data uh, and evidence, 
that will help FDA to feel this, uh, you know, confidence that, okay, this is something we can be compliant of to really use in pharma. What is? Yeah, I think, uh, Definitely the FDA and Genetic also supports this. The reduction, this 3R thing is really to reduce the number of animals used. So there is that there. Um, and I would say there's examples of companies that had a drug but didn't cross the reaction, didn't bind to the target in the, in the common animal species that you use for toxicology because of homology difference between that and human. So they were allowed to go into the clinic just based on in vitro data with human cells. Um, so I think right now there is, you know, if I sit back and think about it, there is some examples where you're able to not do the animal testing, but only because of there was not an animal model available. I think there's some cases where uh, for um, bacterial infections because the animal model is not going to represent mm-hmm. that. So uh, I think if we can go from that to expand to even when it does cross-react, because right now if it cross-reacts to your target and like um, a monkey and, a, and like a rodent species, then you're kind of required to do both of those species for toxicology testing. So I think, you know, there is some examples, but it was only when there wasn't really an option. So now we need to move that to let's make everything that way where we can make decisions based on that. But again, we want to make sure that we're not going to, you know, have patient safety at risk because that we we always put the patients first and that's very important. Eric, if you were the head of the FDA and had a magic wand and can do anything you wanted, what's a big change or uh, set of changes you would make? Well, I think they're trying to get some of these innovative medicines to patients quicker by reducing and giving some incentives for the exclusivity uh, and things like that. So, but I, I think if we can select the molecule we're taking forward better by getting rid of, like uh, Joe mentioned, weeding out the ones that will have potential problems, which is due to the structure or charge or something like that, then, and you also know it's the right affinity uh, and that you can assess in vivo that you're hitting the target to the right amount. I think then you'll know, have more confidence when you go to patients, you'll see the, in the, the reaction that you want to see. Otherwise, a lot of times you're going forward because it's so competitive. People want, don't want to lose time. So they go forward with very little information, taking chances. And, you know, that's a failure, uh, a recipe for, for failure, basically, you know, because, or a lot of failures, maybe some successes along the way. Joe, you talk a lot about data. How are you bootstrapping the data to, to begin with? Great question. So, uh, I think my law, my veterinary medicine experience and my PhD in similar field has really helped me understand and find the information that our models are looking for. Uh, more importantly, what we are initially building, there's a lot of animal data. One of the reasons why we went up, uh, we are going after animal data at the moment because it's much more freely available and it's easier to get access to rather than the clinical trial data. And I think Eric perhaps supports that. So that's one of the ways. And the second is the data flow that we get from our customers where they give us data to really help us evaluate the model internally and as well as externally so they can give us feedback and more importantly, uh, help us build various other features. Because honestly, this company for me is really a mission rather than just getting the money out from the customers. And so we want our customers, more importantly, researchers at Pharma, to help us build the best version of animal or human model on a computer so that they are able to quickly access which are the toxic drugs, which are the right drugs in a more personalized setting, and be able to bring the drugs into the market faster or more in the phase one trials without compromising on the quality and this is why, you know, we are working with pilot projects and early adopter programs at the moment. Cool. Uh, let's talk more about preclinical trials. What are some of the biggest misconceptions or, or just what's something that people don't understand about preclinical trials? 
Well, I think first you have to understand uh, that particular species and the expression of that target that you're hitting uh, versus humans. If it, if it behaves the same, what the affinity is uh, to that target ver- in that species versus humans, because so it's the whole translation part of it, right? So you have to be able to interpret what all this means for the clinic. That's you're not trying to cure animals, so it's really just to understand the PK, uh, the PD, and the safety, so then you can then predict what will happen in the clinic. So you can then you know project the right doses to start with. You know, I think the starting dose is um, most one of the most important ones that they're look at quite uh, intently to make sure the data supports it, but also, you know, how, how high you're going to dose, how you're going to go to repeat dose from a single dose. Uh, and then a lot, a lot of times, at least in non-oncology, uh, you start out in healthy volunteers uh, and then you need to also translate the patients. Uh, in oncology, typically you go right into patients, but those are typically uh, uh, late stage patients because there's already approved molecule out there. They have to have failed that. So again, there is some amount of translation because those, like patients are not necessarily maybe reflective of earlier stage patients as well. So there's, you know, translation both ways. And then you can also translate back uh, to inform next generation molecules, uh, um, combination therapies and things like that. So I think um, there's the translation both ways that you have to have. But I think the whole thing is just predicting clinical. And if there's another way to do that, then I think everyone would be up to that. But right now, there's not necessarily a way to do that. Yeah. Zooming out a bit, I think, you know, the success of Viva, sort of the Salesforce Pharma sort of opened up this idea of SaaS for Pharma because you only need a few customers to be a enormous business. Are you starting, Verisim is another example of sort of a SaaS uh, like business in the biotech space. Have you seen more examples of, of this sort of SaaS for, for Pharma? Yeah, I mean, I, I know at least the Genentech, we uh, pay license for uh, several software packages that are shared uh, for different purposes. So, uh, a lot of them for PKPD modeling, but also other people use them, you know, statistical packages and things. So um, certainly it's well known. And I think it's people prefer it rather than getting like a, a disk that you have to download yeah. the program from. Um, but I, you know, most of these are, are not necessarily then backed up with data uh, right. that's on the cloud and being informed constantly. I think that's where the next step is. But certainly the idea of licensing software is well well established. I think that I think that would be no problem to sell to people. I think they'd be fine with that. If you were running a uh, a biotech venture capital firm, um, how would you think about what your thesis might be in terms of where you see the biggest opportunity? Just zooming out in the whole space. So yeah, I think you know it, it's hard right now because all the easy targets have been taken. So everything's very uh, competitive, and it's not necessarily easy to target. So I think what you have to do is. One, try to go to spaces that are unmet needs rather than a me too, because there's too much piling on these days. Uh, so try to find it, the places where there's unmet needs still that you can get something that'd be, you know, life changing therapeutic rather than just trying to go after somewhere and target. I think that's what I would look for companies that are looking to do innovative things in areas that are unmet and, you know, targeting patients that don't really have anything out there yet. I think that's what I would look for. What can we expect for the future of, of drug development that we haven't yet? Yeah, discuss. So I think Joe alluded to this is the whole personalized uh, medicine approach. So I think both on the payer side and on, you know, the, on the drug development side, everyone, you know, everyone wants to get there. It's just very difficult. So, I mean, we already know that only a small percentage. Well, first of all, we know that a disease is, is not the same in all patients. So right there, you already have a diversity. And then we know that one drug won't work and even, you know, a subset of that patient population. So how do you select the patients? So you're not treating patients who aren't going to get any benefit, uh, but may have some, you know, safety concerns and reduce the cost of healthcare by, you know, not treating those patients, but yet treating with something that's actually going to work. So I, I think that's where I see the next thing going is personalized um, kind of care and understanding that particular person's disease and what's the best therapeutic for them at that time. 
Totally. And what about, you know, the success of STEM centrics a few years ago sort of opened a lot of, you know, tech investors to the opportunity in the space, even if they didn't know, <laughs> even if they're not as, as knowledgeable in the space. And, and you have some people who are very, who are, who are non biotech investors. What's your sort of advice to biotech CEOs who are pitching traditional venture capitalists? Who are not biotech yeah. investors? Yep. Really depends on what, why they need tech investors to invest. If it's a traditional biotech, company that they are starting because tech investors and biotech investors think a bit differently. They price the company differently. The mm-hmm. valuations are different and the goals or returns are different. So perhaps getting to know the difference in why my valuation is higher or X million dollars for a tech investor would be very different for a biotech investor. Another thing that I, I'm aware of tech investors, they're much more comfortable when it comes to technological in- innovations. So if your biotech company is pitching hard on, oh, we are going to make a small molecule based on doing all kinds of uh, in vitro or like lab experiments, uh, which are done for years and years, perhaps that may not be as exciting to tech investors. But if, uh, you know, you mention what's the technical expertise or the innovation you're bringing in your biotech company will help them understand why they need money from me. Because after all, it all comes down to, am I going to be able to help this young uh, startup with my expertise and my learnings? And if they don't feel there's a fit, like, oh, I, I don't know who to talk to, or I don't know what technical question I can answer. If there is any, then they would probably not want to invest. So those are my... Excellent. So zooming out a little bit and wrapping up, what can we look forward to Verisim in the future? You've shared a bit of your your big vision, but if you can give us more to to look forward to, whether in the the medium or or long term, where people should be watching out for Verisim. So the immediate goal is to really focus on the small molecules because it's much more well studied and there's a lot of data available and provide the real world evidence of why Verisim should exist. Uh, And we are expanding to biologics or larger molecules to assess even initially the structure affinity relationship, which means like how a large molecule such as antibody would target a specific pathway or entity in an organ to really create better experimental data sets and also the preclinical and trial design. And our ultimate goal is to be the largest scalable human and animal models so that we are able to provide insights to our pharma's friends and researchers to help them understand what's the next best pathway for a particular disease to chase after or or the drug molecule with the lowest PK are really safe for a particular patient population without having for them to spend years to determine, okay, should I be using this drug for this particular group of patients or not? We would be able to very easily provide that insight that does not exist in the real world at the moment. Excellent. That's a, that's a perfect note to end on. Great. Joe, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. It's been a pleasure. <laughs>